If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Add a berry blast off for your day with the new berry pebbles. A berry twist on a classic breakfast. Perfect for giving those growing minds a blast of creativity. <laughs> with the new berry way to pebbles. Yabba dabba do you with berry pebbles. Head to postpebblescereal.com to learn more. Yabba dabba do and the Flintstones and all related characters and elements. Copyright and trademark Hanna-Barbera. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we have an interview with the BBC journalist Babita Sharma, who's the author of a new book on the history of corner shops. Drawing on her own experience growing up above her parents' shop in Reading, Babita's book reveals what corner shops can tell us about the experience of immigrants in post-war Britain. Our editor, Rob Attar, met her in London to find out more. The corner shop is clearly a British institution. When did it first become associated with immigrant communities? I think... The first association began probably around the late 1950s, early 1960s, and it kind of set a trend really of the time of mass immigration into the UK. And in particular, that was immigrants arriving from the West Indies, from uh, the Southeast Asian continent, Asia, Indians, Pakistanis. And I think that there was an association then that evolved with Indians and East Africans in particular in the corner shop around sort of mid-1960s that really cemented itself for the following three or four decades to come. This was a time actually where there was quite a big influx of immigrants from the subcontinent and also actually from Africa. 
um, including your family, into Britain. What was drawing so many of them into Britain at this time? Well, I can only really speak about mum and dad as an example. And for dad in particular, it was about an adventure, really. You know, he was in his mid-20s and there was a call to basically answer a huge job shortage in the UK. And Commonwealth countries were the first kind of point of call, really, for the British government at the time. And that's when dad heard about it in India when he was in Delhi and there was you know, basically saying strapping young men who've got a lot of energy and um, are willing to kind of work hard, do manual labor, come to England, we'll give you a bit of money and uh, we'll pay for your flight. And you think, oh, that's quite attractive. And that's kind of really what lured him over. There was nothing more than other than a bit of an adventure. And for him, he only wanted to stay for a few years. And that kind of didn't really happen because he ended up staying for the rest of his life and having a family and running corner shops. And I think that that is the immigrant story, I suppose, where lots of people thought that they would see what other opportunities lie overseas. And do you know what your parents and other immigrants like them actually expected to find in Britain and how close did the Britain they encountered match their expectations? I've asked this a lot with people that I've spoken to that I was researching when I was researching the book and in particular, obviously, with mum and dad as well. And it's interesting to know that there wasn't that much of an expectation other than the things that they had heard or encountered about British ways, which was cucumber sandwiches and tea, which is what dad said to me, Um, Winston Churchill, the kind of the might of the British kind of era and the regime, which very much associates itself with Commonwealth countries, I suppose, and the monarchy and all of that. Um, But the reality, I think, was very different in the sense that when my dad arrived here, it was raining nonstop. It was very cloudy it was quite built up and, you know, the green pastures of Delhi seemed like a long way away because it just seemed a bit grey. And I think that was probably the biggest shock to the system was the climate um, and the food where you're used to having such exotic, rich, spicy, colourful food. And you come to the UK and it was more about a particular way of cuisine, your meat and two veg, if you like. And I think that was a big shock. So there was definitely a stark difference between the idea of the adventure and the reality of it. And so lots of Asian families then ended up taking on corner shops. And in many cases, including your parents, it completely revived these moribund businesses. So what do you think were the secrets of their success? I think it comes down to sheer gut, hard work and resilience and determination. And also a bit of Um, insanity I think as well because you know these corner shops are not sociable working hours you know you're waking up at like half four in the morning you're closing up 11 o'clock at night sometimes you're working 24 hours for some of these shops and anybody that's willing to kind of take it on has to be willing to work their backsides off for it so that's where I mean in terms of insanity because now we all value a bit more of a work-life balance or kind of work towards our holidays whereas a lot of the immigrant families that took on corner shops in the 1960s and 70s didn't have holidays they just worked non-stop in these tiny little corner streets of Britain just trying to make ends meet and do well for their families and it's that work ethic that I think is the secret to the success of the corner shop and how many of these families, when you look at their children, don't go on to take on the mantle of a shopkeeper because their parents' hard work has enabled them to be educated and be professionals and move on to a different kind of social standing, if you like. 
And do you think that was the expectation of the, the sort of Asian immigrants, that actually this would be something that they would do to get established, but that their children would then have better opportunities and not necessarily carry on the family business? Yeah, completely. And I think anybody that, any shopkeeper that I've met would be probably very disappointed if their children turned around and said they wanted to own a corner shop. Because for them, all the hard work and sacrifices they made was in order that their children wouldn't do the same crazy work regime and do something that probably paid more and was a bit more sociable and kinder to you as a human being, I suppose. And I know that was the case for my mum and dad. They worked so hard so that me and my sisters could go to university, could do jobs that were different to the ones that they had so that we could basically do better in life. And I think that was the hope, maybe not so much the expectation, but the hope that, you know, their hard work would pay off in that way. And in the book, there's a really interesting part where you talk about the economics of a corner shop and the kind of different markups that go on different products. So what would the, what are the big money spinners for a corner shop when you were growing up? So cigarettes, newspapers, booze, those were the ones where you could kind of get away with adding a bit more of your own markup price if you like I'm saying that really carefully because um obviously there was a regulation in particular with things like eggs milk and bread that was regulated by the government of what the prices had to be so you would never really mark up on those if you did you'd be seen as quite a shrewd business operator and obviously customer service was key so customers wouldn't like to be kind of thinking that they've been had by the shopkeeper um but having said that you know other goods like your cigarettes and your booze, um, your cans of beer, other good ones that was a huge markup was greeting cards because who really knows how much the birthday card that you're buying with a really random deer holding a bunch of balloons is costing. Oh, we'll mark it up by 100%. So there were very clever ways that you could do it. But yeah, I think um, there's a reason why corner shops are kind of associated with bags, booze and papers because that's what a lot of people would go in to buy as passing trade without perhaps realising that they were doing the shopkeeper a very good service because they were kind of maximum markup. And one of, the, one of the big underlying themes of your book, of course, is race relations in Britain over these decades. How did that change over the years that your parents have lived here? It's a really difficult question to answer because I see immigration in cycles. Mm-hmm. And immigration and the corner shops, for example, go hand in hand for me. So the shopkeepers of the past, like your Indian shopkeepers, have now become your Polish shopkeepers. You see the Vietnamese nail bars kind of operating on the same work regime and ethic. But the immigration cycles continue and their place in this country is still controversial. And I think that's quite sad because my dad would tell you about how when he arrived here, He was faced with placards at the time of the Enoch Powell era of white jobs for white people. And as a journalist, I was recently covering the Brexit referendum for BBC World News. And I saw British jobs for British people on placards. And it's a thinly veiled conversation about immigration, which I don't think has ever really changed in this country. It's accepting in one respect. We are incredibly multicultural now. I am a product of that multicultural society. But I think that immigration and its place in Britain is still something that jars with many people. And it's still something that hasn't quite found a natural existence. Well, harmonious existence, I'd say. There's just always problems attached to it, which is such a shame. Because um, I think we could learn so much from the lessons of old. 
And how do you think the corner shop itself fitted into the narrative of race relations? For me, I think it propelled immigrants into society in a really harsh, abrupt manner, because on every Victorian street in this country post-Britain was designed a shop to service a community. Suddenly, when the immigrants come in and take on those shops, wow, there you go. You've got an immigrant face at the corner of a very white street. And I don't think there's a better way of forced assimilation, if you like. And that's why the corner shop has had such an important part of the conversation about race relations in this country. Because if you're going in to buy your newspaper, you're coming across an Indian shopkeeper. And that's perhaps for many in the 1960s, their first interaction with somebody of color, of somebody from a different ethnic background. And like it or not, that there is race relations and seeing how the two communities might be able to function. And um, out of that was born so many stories of dysfunction, as well as assimilation and success stories too. There's one part in your book I thought was really interesting, where you talk about how even members of the National Front would come into the corner shop because they still need to do their shopping. Yeah, and I mean, shopkeepers know many of their customers from cradle to grave. But the kids that then grow up to become members of the National Front were still perhaps buying their ice pops from Mr. Patel and then suddenly growing up to buy their cans of diamond white from Mr. Patel. But he has seen them evolve. And I talk about in one particular chapter about how this one guy who was a member of the National Front would still be very polite to Mr. Patel, even though trying to be a very vocal racist. So he (laughs) couldn't quite figure out if um, his ideology married his upbringing and his childhood which I just love the story of how we'd just be really polite to my, you know, uncle in the shop and then just go out and be like effing and blinding about the immigrants in the country. But as soon as he saw him, he'd be like, hello, how are you? A related point to that, from the other point of view, is the point you make in the book is that it's really important for the corner shop staff and owners to not judge their customers and to treat everybody equally. And, And that was, I believe, one of the successes of the Asian corner shop owners was the way they treated all their customers sort of even worse. Yeah, I think so. And um, that doesn't mean that they didn't judge, though. They did judge, but they would judge behind closed doors. So you would never know what the shopkeeper thought of you. You'd always be polite and you'd always be accepting because at the end of the day, this was a business transaction. It was an exchange of money going into the shopkeeper's pocket. So it was down to you to make sure that your customers are always happy. But behind closed doors, oh my gosh, there'd be loads of judgment of all the customers. They would just never know about it. Did that then give the corner shop owners, a really interesting window into the society of Britain and I suppose also how that was changing over the years. Yeah, I mean, for me, I grew up above a corner shop and I lived and breathed it as a corner shop kid. And anyone that has had a corner shop in their family will tell you that it is all-consuming. And by that, you know, you're living, breathing, working it, but you are observing so many different people walking in what I call my living room, the corner shop floor. And you are observing how these people interact, but also lots of different social classes. And I can't think of any space in Britain still to this day where you've got middle class, working class people all kind of coming together, whether it is to buy a newspaper or a pint of milk. And it's that space where they're all kind of rubbing shoulders with each other and the immigrant shopkeeper without really kind of knowing that they're partaking in kind of a social experiment, if you like, that gets repeated every day. And I grew up watching that. And you do learn so much about people. I mean, we had a GP that lived down the road from a builder and a supply teacher 
and then one of the members of um, a right-wing organization all coming in the shop in one day. And it's brilliant entertainment. Who needed subscription TV or anything at that time? You know, forget Netflix. It was all about just watching people. And you still, to this day, can find that if you go into a corner shop. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Warfare on the streets of Britain is what I call it. Corner shop warfare. Yeah, I mean, we had a big rivalry. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. So one of the, the big changes, economic changes, I suppose, that happened in this time was the rise of the supermarket. Mm. What kind of a challenge did that present to corner shops and how did they manage to survive it? It was probably the biggest threat to corner shop life because, you know, pre-supermarkets, and we're talking about sort of the 1940s and 50s, in this country, it had always been a place, the corner shop, where you would buy everything. It would be your baker, your butcher, it would be your pharmacy, it would be your grocery store. Whereas when the supermarkets came, they suddenly delivered choice on a huge grand scale. And it was very um, enticing because there were these huge aisles with wonderful trolleys, lots of branded products. It was, and I describe this in the book, the Americanization of shopping in this country. And it really was that kind of US culture that started to rub off on Brits here because you'd see it on TV and suddenly now you'd see it in your shopping trolleys. And the corner shop just basically didn't know what to do with itself because suddenly they couldn't compete with cheaper prices, mass goods, um, mass consumption. 
And the shopkeeper and the shop just started to dwindle away. And it was a really difficult time for it. And many sort of predicted that its time was over. And for a while, you saw lots of these boarded corner shops on the streets of Britain. And then suddenly with the influx of immigrants who wanted to work for themselves and not answer to a boss on the factory floor, they thought, well, we could perhaps take on this dilapidated shell and see what we could do with it. And that suddenly brought this resurgence uh, for corner shops. And it was something the supermarkets, I don't think, thought was possible. But actually, what then happened was the resurgence of the corner shop meant that people were still needing their quick fix, their pint of milk and their newspaper, and they couldn't be bothered to go to the supermarket to do a bigger shop. And then that's when the lifeline was given back to it. So it was the convenience of the corner shop that became what saved it? Yeah, I think the convenience, the hours, the fact that it was willing to open up at ridiculous hours throughout the day, it is down your road and it will help you in an emergency. And, you know, we have to remember that a lot of the supermarkets in Britain at the time of the 1950s, 60s and 70s happened to be on the outskirts of cities. They were kind of the places you'd get in a car to go to and have a a big day out. And that's all well and good. But if you need that bag of sugar that you've run out of, you don't want to go in the car and travel a few miles to get to your supermarket. You go down the corner shop. So there's always a place for it. And it was nice that it found its feet again um, and still does to this day. One character who listeners might be surprised to know appears quite a lot in your book is Margaret Thatcher. Mm. I'd be interested to talk about how she fits into the story of the corner shop. Yeah, people that have read the book, uh, some somebody said to me recently, um, there is a lot of Maggie in there. And I didn't really think that until I sort of started writing it, because for me, Margaret Thatcher was a premise of when I was growing up. But also going up to Grantham, which is where her family's corner shop was, and researching it, we had, bizarrely, I didn't think so, a lot in common, <laughs> because we were both corner shop daughters. Um, our bedrooms overlooked the same kind of aspect, if you like, of the street where you could kind of take it all in. And she describes in her memoirs the impact of shop life on her. And I could understand what she was saying in the sense that you don't have any private time, any private family time. It's all about the shop. And she used to help her father, Alfred Roberts, on various delivery runs, as I did with my father. And it just seemed the right way to bring a parallel, I think, between the two of some, somebody who is incredibly well known in this country, who has a corner shop story, and also to bring it back to my own personal experiences. And then in the 80s, she was a champion, wasn't she, of corner shop owners? Yeah, um, I think that Margaret Thatcher got her shrewd operating skills from corner shop life. Um, and the way that you have to be as a shopkeeper to operate. But yeah, she kind of held the shopkeeper as this real kind of champion of conservative values, you know, the entrepreneurial, hardworking person. Um, But it was only really short-lived. It only really suited the conservatives at the time to whatever narrative they wanted to deliver. And then that would quickly change. And ironically, she was the one that dealt the biggest blow to corner shops in the 1980s. 90s by changing the trading laws. So Sunday trading became a thing, a real thing, and many people have fought against it. But it suddenly opened the floodgates of retail in the same way that supermarkets had done in the 1950s and 60s. And it was her that did that. And I think that um, it was really difficult because many corner shops folded at the time because they couldn't then compete with the supermarkets that were opening up on a Sunday. 
And another story in your book that I thought was really interesting was when a rival shop opened up nearby and the interplay between the, the two families and the two, two news agents. Was that quite common then? Were there often examples of corner shops being very near each other? And, and how would that play out with the different families? Brutal warfare on the streets of Britain is what I call it, corner shop warfare. Yeah, I mean, we had a big rivalry with them. Our shop was on a corner and probably about 400 yards away was another shop on the other corner, run by Punjabi Indians as well. And we were literally doing battle with each other on a daily basis, whether it be on food prices or opening hours or opening on Christmas Day or not opening on Christmas Day. It was constant. Um, I look back at it now and I laugh, but it was pretty intense at the time because mum would open up the shop and then look across and see that he's got a special offer board outside. And she'd think, oh, what can I do tomorrow? But it was it was competition that the corner shopkeepers at the time had to have to stay ahead of the game because there are lots of corner shops in Britain and there are many wherever you are as a business person. So you have to kind of operate in a competitive manner. Um, and yet it's not friendly. And I remember dad telling me about it, the cash and carry about how all the shopkeepers, the ones you were friendly with, would talk about the ones that you weren't friendly with and what you could do to get one over them. So yeah, pretty brutal. And you've already alluded to this quite a bit, but how much did the corn shop affect your own childhood? How much of your life was spent helping out in the shop? I, I lived and breathed it. Um, annoying as it was at the time, I now have a full appreciation for what it was able to give me in terms of perspective on life. But I did absolutely detest it at times and um, would just be so fed up of just having to sit there and, you know, stock the shelves or um, even eat the sweets got boring after a while. I know I can't believe I'm saying that, but it does. You kind of think, I don't want to be here and I just want to have my own space. And why do I not have a doorbell to a front door that's normal? Why do I have a kind of ka-ching sound instead of a ding-dong in my living room as a child. Um, but, you know, it's offered me such an incredible opportunity to understand people, I think. And I think it's no coincidence that I am a journalist. Um, I have a curious mind, and I think that that was very much born out of just watching people uh, come in and out of our shop for many, many years. And as you mentioned earlier, Sunday training laws have changed. What kind of health is the corner shop in today? Surprisingly very good. Um, there was a recent study carried out by the Retail Association that predicted, I think it's corner shops were expected to trade around 14 billion over the next five years, 14 billion pounds, which is extraordinary when you think about these sort of shabby shelving type places that we've got on the corners of Britain that don't really seem to be that enticing in the face of, you know, your Tesco's or your Marks and Spencer's or your Waitrose or your Sainsbury's. But they are managing to stay. They are managing to do well, very well. And I think that's to do with, again, convenience and the opening hours. But also, I think our loyalty, there seems to be a real kickback against the big conglomerates at the moment and people wanting to support the local. And the corner shop is in a perfect place for people to kind of have that sense of morality about shopping, if you like. And I think that that combined with the need for the emergency bag of sugar, like I've spoken about before, is going to always keep the corner shop in business, I hope. Clearly, you're working in a corner shop, like you say, a lot of people of your generation aren't. But how do people, second generation immigrants, feel about the corner shop now as part of like their history? The people that I've spoken to um, 
have and, and like me we've kind of gone in a roundabout way back to loving it having really found it incredibly annoying and a bit like a constant burden on the family to now understanding what a great space it was and what a unique way of living it was but we can do that because we've got the space and we're not running corner shops I think that you know I have a newfound respect for it whenever I walk into a, a shop knowing how difficult it really is to run this business and how grueling it is on the family and I take my hat off to every shopkeeper of Britain today because it's not an easy decision to run one of those shops. That was Babita Sharma. Her book, The Corner Shop, Shopkeepers, the Sharmas and the Making of Modern Britain is available now, published by Two Roads. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when we'll be discussing the real Peaky Blinders. 